This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This is going to be a really interesting segment because this segment is all based on the frequently asked questions that you get at Sands & Associates. And, and we're really going to cover a huge sort of swath of them. Uh, and I love the idea, Blair, that you're one of those people and... I get that you're honest and sincere when you say it, that there is no such thing as a stupid question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've heard it said the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. I love that because that's the biggest thing, right? Folks are hesitant to look, to either ask questions or look for answers to the questions because afraid of being judged, assume they should already know the answer. That's one of my things. I should mm-hmm. know the answer to this already. O- or responses, or afraid of the responses that you might get. Uh, but in reality, bankruptcies, consumer proposals, we're talking about if you're in debt or you know someone who is, these are good answers uh, for folks that are needing help. So let's start with the first one. Can I avoid bankruptcy uh, but still deal with my debts? Yeah, in, in almost every case, Elaine, the, an, the answer is yes there. So bankruptcy is always a last resort, and it always depends on how early you identify an issue because that's when you have a lot more options. You know, if you're being taken to court and, you know, they're threatening to seize your wages or things like that, you've got fewer options at that point. But if you identify that you've got a problem early enough, there are different things that you can do. You know, one is to approach your bank for a traditional debt consolidation. If you're not delinquent on payments, if you've still got some assets, you know, sometimes your bank will help you in putting all your debt together, taking your interest rate from what might be 18, 20%, maybe down to, you know, 8 or 10%. Massive change if you still keep those payments the same. You've just cut your interest rate massively, and then you can see, start to see some daylight. Can I ask you a question about that? How yep. often do you see, the, see that happen? For folks? Not often. Okay. Yeah. For most people to get a consolidation loan, they either have to have a lot of equity in their house um, or they need to have, you know, some asset that the bank can secure because quite often the bank is not going to advance new money um, where they're not sure they're going to get paid if you if you default on it. Right. So it does work sometimes. I have people come in and clearly they've got a lot of equity in their house. They'll have no problem getting a consolidation loan and that is the answer for them. But for folks who have no assets, even if their credit is perfect and they've got a great relationship with the bank, consolidation loan can be pretty tough to get. Okay. And sometimes, you know, not to say this is a solution that brings a problem, but sometimes it does, that if you consolidate that debt, sometimes it doesn't force you to deal with the underlying issues of why you got into debt in the first place. If suddenly, hey, you can afford these payments again, and then what I've seen is, you know, the consolidation loan is where it is, and then sometimes the other cards start to go back up to where they were again. Got it. So I've seen people, you know, sometimes over a period of years, they've had to pull equity out or consolidate from their home equity, you know, multiple times, and they're just literally mortgaging their future. When they sell that house, they're not going to have the the asset that they should have had there. So consolidating your debts doesn't sound like a super great idea, the best of the bunch. 
it, as long as you do it with a clear sense, you're going to pay off the consolidation, you're going to not incur that debt again, it can make sense. But yeah, it, it's definitely, for most people, it's not going to be a very solid answer. For the average person. Yeah, I would yeah. say for, for more people, you know, for people that don't have any assets and, they, you know, really feel like they can't afford their debts, sometimes doing nothing is actually the right answer. Hmm. Yeah. How's that? How does that work? Well, so there's a thing called the Statute of Limitations or the BC Limitations Act in BC. And if you've got a debt and you know you'll never be able to clear it, you just know, hey, I can make these payments until I, I leave this, this green earth. Um, what the BC Limitations Act says, if you stop paying on that debt, your creditors can't hold you accountable for the rest of your life. They can't threaten to sue you. They can't, you know, take you to court forever. They've got to decide within two years. Are they going to take formal action against you to force you for payment? Keep in mind, if you've got no assets and minimal income, they're probably not going to do that, but they have to decide within two years of that. If you keep making minimum payments over time, all you're doing is making sure that they never lose that right to take you to court. Got it. You're extending that two-year period indefinitely. And that's why sometimes if you, you know, you phone the credit card company and say, you know what, I don't think I can make any payments. They say, okay, just pay something, pay $50 a month, pay 25 a month. Are they being compassionate? Yes. But are they being self-interested? Absolutely. Because that's resetting the limitations period every time you make a payment. Got it. So it's from the last day you file, they've got, sorry, the last day that you pay on that account, two years is when they have to decide if they're ever going to force you to pay. If it's two years plus a day. They can still ask you for payment, but if they ever tried to take you to court, it would be thrown out. Okay, but that sort of would limit my uh, opportunity to do business with them again, or have credit card with them, or yeah, with right? that with that particular bank. Now they're probably not going to like you very much in the short term, but yeah, in the long term, there's many other banks that are out there. And again, this is a subset of folks who have minimal income and no assets. You know, sometimes it's the 75-year-old senior citizen where I explain, you know, if you keep making these payments, you're going to be no better off. If you stop making these payments, they're not going to sue you and you're going to be better off in the future. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the one that we always talk about that I just think is fabulous is the consumer proposal idea. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, for many people, they think they come into the office, they know they can't pay the debts off in full, and they know they can't consolidate their debts, and they think those are their only options. The, the next step is bankruptcy. Absolutely not. For two-thirds of people that we see, they make a consumer proposal, which anyone who's listened to the show knows exactly what it is. But, you know, in 30 seconds here, it's yeah. you make a deal where you agree to pay off usually about a third of the debt with no interest, no additional charges, and you get up to five years to pay off that reduced amount. So it's numbers like taking $40,000 of debt down to $13,000 and the person pays, you know, $220 a month. And you facilitate that we for me. We facilitate the entire process. Sands and Associates yeah. does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about, by just talking about the consumer proposal, it's not the same as a debt settlement, or mm-hmm. or is it? Well, so debt, terms, yeah, right? debt settlement's a bit of a, a loaded term. So in simple terms, debt settlement means, hey, you dealt with your debts, they're settled and you're out of debt. So a consumer proposal is that. Is but that? what debt settlement often means is where you'll work with a company who's not a trustee and what they'll say is, hey, we're going to get you a reduction in debt, you know, down to, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. So it sounds like a consumer proposal, but it's totally different. A consumer proposal, everything is done by the law. Everything goes into a trust account. It's only available through a trustee. Debt settlement, it's usually unlicensed providers. You pay them a bunch of money for fees and there's no guarantee of success. 
In a proposal, you know you've got a deal in the first 45 days and that's it. In debt settlement, you might pay for years, you might pay a bunch of fees, and at the end of the day, have no good result. There's nothing guaranteed about it. So we're doing frequently asked questions to Sands and Associates. One of them is, can I keep my house and car if I file for personal bankruptcy? Right. Most people would say, no, you got to lose your house and your car, and the trustee shows up and takes everything. Almost every case, people are able to retain their house and their car. So okay. let, let's talk about why, right? Yeah, please. So yeah, first off, if you've got a car, most of us these days have financed our cars. And, you know, as soon as you drive the car off the lot, you know, if the car was worth 20000 your financing was 20000 if you tried to sell that car a couple months later, you probably still owe 19000 but the car is worth 15000 It depreciates so quickly. Very fast. So for just about any vehicle that's financed, you're actually in a negative equity situation. So if someone files for bankruptcy, and if we look at, you know, the car is worth $10,000 and they owe $15,000 on it, it's their option if they want to keep the car or not. If they want to keep making the payments because they like the car and they know it's, you know, they're going to pay more than what it's worth, but they're okay with that, bankruptcy is not going to step in the way. Conversely, if they said, hey, I owe more on the car than what it's worth, bankruptcy allows them to walk away from the car, get something different, not be held accountable to that debt. But there's nothing automatic about losing your car in a bankruptcy. Now, if you've got, you know, a classic car, you got, you know, a Porsche Spider worth hundreds mm. of thousands of dollars. Yeah. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, if you file for bankruptcy, I have to auction off that car. Right. But the Court Order Enforcement Act of BC says that every BC resident is entitled to one vehicle worth up to $5,000 after all encumbrances. So you could get another car out yeah. in, the, in that case. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, a consumer proposal, how does it impact my spouse? That's a great question to ask. Yeah, the answer is generally not at all. Um, so again, most people are very concerned, you know, if one spouse has a bunch of debt issues and the other spouse has managed everything, you know, in a different way and has perfect credit, is one spouse dealing with debt going to tank the other person's credit? Absolutely not. Now, how often do you run into that situation where one person is incredibly uh, fastidious about their mm -hmm. debts and, and, and how they run their finances and the other one isn't. It's like an Oscar and Felix thing. How more, often do you run across that? More often than not, really? I, would, I would say, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, no. I wouldn't have guessed. A lot of clients, when, when they come in, you can see that there's two solitudes. There's, you know, one partner with the spreadsheets, everything very, very identified, you know, okay. very set out, and the other partner with the shoebox full of receipts, and, and we, we go oh, through it. So it's interesting, too, as part of either a bankruptcy or a proposal, is you've got to come for counseling. So we talk about the different relationships people have with money. You know, some people, they literally hate money. Some people fear it. Some people love it. And it's understanding your relationship with it often dictates how you're going to organize your life. Got it. So again, back to the question, consumer proposal affect my spouse? No. Yeah. So any debts that you have, um, if you're compromising them, it hits your credit rating. It does not impact your spouse one iota. Even the if we're married and have yep. the same name and all that stuff. No issue with that. The okay. only potential impact is if there's a debt that you are both joint on. Okay? okay. So if you both owe MasterCard or Visa, whatever, and one person does a consumer proposal, the other person is going to still have to pay that debt right? Because it's a joint debt and we're only dealing with one person in the proposal, right? So as long as the other person keeps up on those obligations, they would be fine. There's no impact. Usually a better idea is we look at the entire family and we do a joint proposal. So we make sure if both partners have debt that we're dealing with everything. If only one partner has debt, guaranteed there is no impact to this the spouse who is not in debt or who is managing things just fine. Okay. Another question that comes up all the time for you is what are the fees? What do I have to pay you, Sands and Associates, to create a consumer proposal for me and then and then look after, support me for those three years? 
years uh, or, you know, support my journey, I should probably say. So what's the cost? Well, one way to look at it is your creditors actually pay all the cost. So when we do a consumer proposal, we base it on what do we think you can afford to pay back? And you offer that amount back to your creditor. So if you owe $20,000 and we think you can afford to pay back $6,000, that's all you pay back. We get paid out of that amount and the balance goes to your creditors. So every dollar that a trustee collects goes into a trust account. And before we pay out money to the people that you owe money to, the government says, here's what can be retained for trustee fees. So in general, it's roughly 20% of what you pay into the proposal is trustee fees. Roughly 80% of what you pay into the proposal goes to the debts. And again, everything is set up right from the start. If we say the proposal is $200 a month, that's inclusive of everything you're ever asked to pay. And you've, and you, what, the one thing I've heard you say is that uh, you will never, you will never pay more than what you're supposed to, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you end up paying less. Yeah. So in many times in a consumer proposal, um, you know, we will be able to get a deal that's even greater than what we thought, you know, even better than we thought we'd have to go in at 30 cents on the dollar. As we look a little bit closer, we see, well, you know, actually we can go in at 20 cents or 25 cents or something like that. So our objective is to make a deal that someone can afford, that's reasonable to everybody, but it's not to maximize the amount that you have to pay back. We're not an agent of the creditors. We're an independent court office or helping you access a legal remedy. This sounds like a good idea. If you're in a pickle and you need some help, Sands and Associates, that's where you go. It's very easy to get a hold of them. Sands-trustee.com is the website. The number, 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation to find an office near you. Joining us on the show right now is Christy Rosling, owner and principal planner of Umbrella Events. Now, since starting her company, Christy has over six years of experience as a wedding and event planner, and her company caters to clients all over the Lower Mainland and specializes in LGBT weddings and events. Hello, Christy. Hi. Hi there. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Uh, Wanted to ask you, you know, uh, being a wedding planner, and I, uh, you know, know a bunch of people whose kids are getting married, whose young people are getting married. There's always trends. What's the what's the latest trend right now for weddings? Oh my gosh, that's really hard to say. Florals are always a really big trend. I'd say that's pretty on point right now. Um, photo booths will never get old. That's still a trend, right? Um, yeah, God, there's so many, and it really varies depending on the client and what they want. Um, for their wedding, I personally encourage clients to be as unique as possible. So I try not to pay too much attention to trends because it really just depends on what the client wants. And I really appreciate when clients want to do something a little different with their wedding. All right. Uh, Christy, what are some of the typical costs or expenses of weddings? So realizing, you know, you can be as unique as, as the individual person, but if for a broad sense, if someone is, is sitting here sure. trying to understand the financial impact of a wedding, what are some of the, the broader costs they've got to consider? For sure. Well, for any wedding, of course, you need a venue, um, something for both your ceremony and reception. You also want to feed your guests, so you're going to come across catering costs, um, staffing costs with the catering company. 
Um, I always recommend and almost insist that you have a photographer because you need memories of your day. Um, so those are definitely standard costs that any couple would come across. Um, almost everything else can almost be a variable. Um, but it's definitely a good idea, I think, to, if you have it in your budget, hire a videographer, just because I think there's, you know, magical moments that happen at events that you don't um, typically know are going to happen but would be really good to have on video after. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a good idea to have a DJ as opposed to doing an iPod or something like that yourself. Um, they can really read your crowd and keep the party going, so I think it's a good thing to have. Um, entertainment is also a fun thing to have. Like I mentioned before, a photo booth is a, is a good thing to have, um, but other entertainment as well, and there's lots of possibilities for that. Um, I also think it's a really good idea for clients to consider having not even necessarily a wedding planner, a lot of brides and couples in general have um, the time and ability to plan their wedding themselves, but hiring a coordinator to, you know, someone that knows everything about your wedding on the wedding day that can answer all your vendors' questions and make sure that you're you're not working on your wedding day, you're just getting married, um, is also a good idea. Uh, That was a bit of a long-winded answer. No, (laughs) it was a a great answer, Christy, because you covered a whole lot of areas. One of the key words that you used, too, was budget. How do you even begin to budget for a wedding? Figure out, uh, you know, how big or small your wedding's going to be and then come up with some sort of cost associated with it. How do you do that? It's a little bit hard, and it's tricky to say um, exactly how to do that because everybody's wedding is going to be different. Um, so, I mean, the average budget, I would say, to, to estimated for a, a wedding in Vancouver would be at least $30,000 to hire all the vendors that you need um, to take care of your day. Um, you can definitely do a wedding for less than that, and you can definitely do a wedding for a lot more than that. But I'd say um, that's kind of a healthy budget. Um, to have the flexibility to get what you want for your wedding day. Can you break it? Can you even begin to break it down in terms of percentage of that amount of money uh, to spend on the venue, the food? Because I would, those to me are like yeah. the two most important pieces. Uh, and <laughs> then and then move down and then move down the list. For sure. Okay. Well, if I was going to throw out a, a percent, I would say your venues, um, potentially both your ceremony and your reception venue, catering potentially booze, if you're covering even a portion of that, is probably going to hover around 40% of your budget. Um, And that would, of course, depend on the location that you're getting married um, and whether, you know, you have the the venue for the entire day or if it's just a portion of a day um, and whether the venue comes with, like, rentals and that kind of thing because some venues do charge for that as well. So I'd say probably about 40% of that. I'd say your next big expense, and I'm not sure what percentage it would be exactly, but would be your photographer. Um, I I think photographers would probably average for a good run around $4,000. So that would probably be your next big cost, but definitely something you want to be sure to invest in and make sure you've hired a good one for your wedding. Um, And that's a little bit hard to do because there's a lot of photographers in Vancouver, so you really have to do a lot of research. Um, you could probably spend that much on a wedding planner as well. And, I mean, hiring a wedding planner is such a great idea just because they're able to, you know, solve problems that haven't even happened yet um, that you would potentially make throughout your wedding planning process that would end up costing you money, um, you know, extra money before your wedding day. So those would be your main costs. A videographer can be a little bit costly as well, but like I said before, great idea if you can have a budget for it. Um 
depending on the decor that you want to, that could also be a, a healthy portion of your budget. Florals especially can end up costing quite a bit of money. Um, but besides that, everything else is kind of reasonably priced. It's a, you know, DJs and hair and makeup, transportation are all kind of on the lower end of that um, spectrum and would have less of a percentage of your budget. Um, yeah, I think that would be, that would pretty much cover your wedding. Christy, are, are there any kind of hidden or lesser known costs that you find with um, some of your clients? Maybe they get, get a shock at the end of the day. Well, that really wasn't in the budget. We didn't anticipate it. But from your experience, you've seen, well, this kind of does happen. So are there some of the hidden lesser known costs people should be aware of? Sure, definitely. I'd say even um, if you're going to look into a venue, it has a price tag on it, but you don't know a lot of the fees that are associated with that that aren't necessarily presented right away. Um, things like if you need insurance for that venue, so can fees. If you're paying for staff to staff the venue, you're also paying gratuities to the servers that are working at your wedding and all that kind of stuff. So those are definitely expenses that you don't normally see up front. And that could add um, up to something significant if it's, you know, gratuity, staff, or, you know, quite quite a number of folks, right? Absolutely. If yeah. you're paying, um, you know, say, say for example, it was $60 a person for, for a dinner, you're probably paying 18% gratuity on top of that. So if you have 100 people, you're paying $6,000 for the food alone, you're also probably going to get some, you know, appetizers. Hopefully you're getting a late night snack because that's always a good idea, but you definitely are paying for that in addition to... Um, the staff you're also paying them gratuity usually hovers around 18%. So that's a bit of a hidden cost as well. I was thinking too, Christy, as as one starts to research and find venues and caterers and all those kinds of things, are there some key words or key things to look for when you're looking for, uh, let's say, a venue, for example, that will give you a better idea of what it's going to cost at the end of the day? Uh, Definitely. I mean, when you're just searching for venues and browsing around the internet, you probably won't um, realize all of those fees. But once you've kind of decided on maybe even a couple venues that you're going to consider, it's always a good idea to ask them for a quote. Um, At that point, you can give them your estimated guest count and what you're kind of anticipating um, providing for them, whether it's, you know, the food, whether you're going to cover the bar, um, whether there's going to be dancing there, um, which would incur the music fees. Um, whether you need insurance, um, they would be able to, at that point, provide you a quote to consider the full amount of the of the venue before you actually commit to it. A little bit of the work that I did with a, a relative looking for a wedding venue is just going and meeting the person who's in charge of the venue, taking yeah. a look at it, and I found that that was super helpful in terms of finding out a bit more of what I might need as a result. That's always a great idea. Once you've narrowed down your search a little bit, to actually go and put your eyes on the venue so you can visualize the event in there is always a good idea. And when you're meeting with a venue coordinator, they'll be able to answer any question that you have and provide you all that information. So it's definitely a good idea once you've narrowed down your search a little bit to go and see the venue. That's very important, I think. That's great, Christy. We've been talking with Christy Rosling. Her website, www.umbrellaevents.ca. She's owner and principal planner of Umbrella Events, of course, uh, uh, expert in wedding and event planning. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christy. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information.
You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. We've got Taylor Mark on the line with us right now from Engrace Financial Solutions. EngraceFinancial.com is the website. She's founder and CEO of Engrace Financial Solutions, certified financial planner, very knowledgeable, certified health insurance specialist, and holds a charter life underwriter designation. Thank you so much for joining us, Taylor. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Blair. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Now we're talking about insurance. And boy, oh boy, it's a hot topic, especially when you need it. Yes, there's, absolutely. And there's all kinds of insurance out there, uh, having the right types to help avert a financial disaster. So we'll bring it right back to dollars and cents here. Uh, in a in a in a situation where it was completely unexpected. And I always think about renters and fires. I was in the news business for a very long time. And whenever there was apartment mm. fire and you, these poor folks didn't have insurance and renters mm. insurance and oh my gosh, but homeowners equally as important. Absolutely. I mean, for renters insurance, the reason that you have it is obviously to protect the value of your contents. But what most people don't realize that it also includes liability insurance. So in case you cause some sort of accidental uh, property damage or bodily injury, it actually covers you if someone wants to sue you. And obviously, uh, it's such an important insurance to have, but most renters don't think about it and want to save money and decide against it. But it is honestly something that everyone should consider. Especially about the liability part of it. I hadn't even thought about that. I always just think about the stuff, that their loss of their stuff. But liability, that's a really important piece. That's actually the most important piece, in my opinion. I mean, content, you know, generally in, let's say, a one-bedroom apartment, it could be anywhere from 20000 to maybe $100,000 of things that could be lost in a fire. But when it comes to a liability claims, someone can sue you for their loss of income, and that could go into the million. Right. So, you know, it, it's not most people, something not they think about, but they should talk to an insurance advisor. That's yeah. the reason we're here. A really, a really important piece. Well, let's stay on that kind of track of thinking. Um, what are the kinds of available insurances that the regular folk may not be aware of, and why should we be aware of them? Okay, well, I serve as a certified financial planner, and my key focus is to protect clients against three principal risks. Uh, they are living too long, dying mm-hmm. too soon, having major illness or accident happen to them, and therefore are unable to work. So uh, to explain that a little bit, living too long is about having the proper retirement planning and discussing uh, the risk of outliving your savings. Life insurance is to protect against dying too soon. It addresses uh, things like final expenses, debt replace, uh, repayment, uh, income replacement for the loved one that's left behind. La- long-term disability and critical illness insurance are there to protect against the loss of income in the event of an illness or injury or serious diagnosis. So in my opinion, this is a major concern and should be made a priority. You know, There's no such thing as too much income when someone is ill. And that's that's relatively new, Taylor, that the critical illness insurance, I don't remember seeing that, you know, maybe going back five, five, 10 years. Is that right? Is this something that's, you know, it's more of a trend, more of a new product that's come out? It's been around probably, 
I would say towards 15 to 20 years, Mm -hmm. actually. But I have to say it's uh, less talked about, less discussed between clients and advisors. And I honestly don't know why. Um, I personally just feel like it's one of the more important solutions for my clients because if you really think about it, if someone is ill, and right now 67% of claims are based Um, on cancer. So if somebody's going through that, they are there physically and they are causing, you know, like chaos emotionally and financially because they're still there, but they're not able to work. And everybody is just stressed by what is happening. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I, I have personal experience in this matter. And I can tell you critical illness should be one of the first things someone should consider when it comes to insurance protection. Yeah, and even if they've got, you know, benefits, long-term disability or, or whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, to your point earlier, you're not going to feel like you have too much income when, when you're sick. And that extra benefit can mean, mean life or death or, you know, uh, really being able to focus on your recovery as opposed to being distracted by, you know, the other financial, you know, demands that you can't satisfy. Absolutely. And another thing about critical illness compared to the group benefit that you may have, which is a monthly income replacement, critical illness is a lump sum. So that will allow you to collect a, a certain amount of benefit that comes to you and you can do whatever you need to do with it. It's not dependent on whether you're able to work or not. And is that taxable, Taylor? No, it's not. Oh. So yes. that so that's very positive. So if someone you know was had a high income, you know that money coming to them tax free can you know, replace. You know they'd have to earn a lot more to replace that equivalent money. Absolutely, it's hard too to to even think about uh, preparing for critical illness because it's one of those that come under the category that we refer to here on the show. Uh, the life happens things, and uh, it's. How difficult is it for folks to get their heads around that that it it can be life saving or such an important piece to to purchase? I mean, how do you how do you really approach that with somebody who's unsure about it? Well, uh, I use the analogy of the Titanic. Uh, so in this scenario, the Titanic is uh, represented uh, representing your health, and the Titanic was considered the unsinkable ship. So. Like I said, in this scenario, I provide the lifeboat. Hmm. I don't know. That's, that's one way of looking at it. And another way is just basically saying, if you're in a situation where you're going through something just, you know, so stressful, do you really want to add the finance aspect to it on top of just, you know, trying to save your own life? Right. Fair enough. What about misconceptions? Uh, do are, are there sort of some top three misconceptions that, that people have about insurance coverages these days? Yes. Most people believe themselves to be well insured. In my opinion, that is not the case. Uh, so that is what it is. You have to go through a, a real uh, in-depth uh, needs analysis to to really understand what is needed. So that's one thing. But another one that I come across is that some people believe insurance companies are greedy and won't pay at time of claim. And that's mm. their excuse for not having the insurance. Uh, so for life insurance and disability insurance, for example, the policies, if the policies were properly underwritten, 
you know, upfront and not at time of claim, it will pay out to legitimate claims. So reputable insurance companies don't need to teach you all of your benefits because their actuaries have already done all the calculations upfront and know that every year they are expected and ready to pay an X number of claims. They just don't know to whom. And Taylor, what does that mean properly underwritten? So does that mean that, you know, you worked with the right insurance professional, they showed you exactly how to disclose everything fully, so when it's time to collect, there's nothing that, you know, was not accurate at the time of application. Is that what that means, or is there something different? That is absolutely what it means, but to even add to that, it's also uh, compared to different types of insurance and how it is underwritten. So, for example, a lot of insurance that you get through your lender uh, for your mortgage, for example, you are required to maybe look, you know, answer maybe five health questions. And most cases, we're so inundated with other things, we just you know, check off no, no, no. Mm. Well, at the time of claim, and whether that's you know, when you pass away because it's death or it's a disability, that's when they go back to your medical history at that time and look backwards and see if you actually indeed qualify for this insurance. And so that's underwriting at time of claim. But how I work with clients is that every policy application that I put across, it's being underwritten upfront where the nurse comes to you, they ask all the right questions, get all the information, the underwriter may go directly to your uh, your doctor to get more medical information. They pretty much know everything there is to know about you. So that at time of, and they approve of you, and then at time of claim, if that's the case, you know, they're good to go. They're ready to give out that money because they already know they're, all there is to know. That, that sounds like a, a much better approach, Taylor, being that, you know, having all the professionals invest time up front rather than having, you know, some surprise at the, at the time of claim. Obviously, nobody would want that. How can you even defend it at that time? I yeah. mean, you're, well, first of all, you could be dead, so you're not <laughs> even here to defend it. Yeah. And then, you know, you're in the middle of a crisis if, because of an injury or, or illness. And, you know, that's just, yeah, it, it would be a terrible situation if that's the case. Taylor, what should somebody consider when they're, you know, choosing between insurance brokers? Because obviously it's a relationship. Ideally, it's going to be over the long term. Uh, What would be the hallmarks of that relationship when you know you're with somebody good? Well, uh, I would ask the question of whether he or she is trustworthy. That comes down to just getting, I would, maybe a sixth sense. Maybe uh, a referral is ideal from your friends and family that already have experience, you know, working with this advisor. But trustworthy is the key, in my opinion, because they are really in your life, have access to your financial information, your medical information. They really know in depth of who you are and who your family are. Uh, the other aspect of it I would consider is whether this advisor are is knowledgeable and able to inspire you to act on an informed decision. And the third thing to consider, perhaps, is to t- is whether this advisor takes the time to get to know you and really understand who you are and what your goals are and to educate you on the different aspects of financial planning. The more information that is available in front of the advisor, the more able uh, he or she can help you plan for you know, for the long duration, that could be for retirement planning and for the unimaginable. They also sound like really good things to keep in mind if the person you're talking to 
isn't giving you or isn't asking you those questions, Taylor? Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Because if they're not getting taking the time to get to know you, then on what are they basing their um, recommendations on? Exactly. And when you really need them, are they going to be there for you? Yes, true. We've been talking with Taylor Mark from Engrace Financial Solutions. Our website is ingracefinancial.com. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was so much fun. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Well, Blair, we talk about you being a licensed insolvency trustee all the time. Let's talk about what that really means to the person who has no idea, no idea, has never heard of that term before. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a mouthful. Um, so, you know, three parts to a licensed insolvency trustee. Um, so essentially what happens is, or what happened this year, is the government said for the last, you know, 30 years, uh, we haven't had what's called a licensed insolvency trustee. We were called trustees in bankruptcy, okay? And essentially same types of functions. Nothing, nothing much has changed from what a trustee can do. We can still help you get out of debt. We can help you with a consumer proposal. We can help you with a personal bankruptcy. But what the government thought is that the title of trustee in bankruptcy is too limiting and really created so much fear in the consumer's mind. Nobody wants to consider bankruptcy, definitely not as their first option. People have very negative connotations about a bankruptcy proceeding and how it would go. And for the majority of trustees, ourselves included, bankruptcy is an increasingly small part of what we do. More than two-thirds of people that come through the door, we're helping them not go bankrupt. We're helping them do a consumer proposal, restructure their debts, get on with their life without filing a bankruptcy. So for a lot of reasons, this name change made a whole lot of sense. Now, what what do you have to go through in order to be the guy that can do this work? Yeah, so a trustee is it's a relatively small, I like to say, elite group of professionals in Canada. It's only a thousand people in Canada have this power. So the government gives a license to an individual as a trustee, and before the government will consider to license you, you need to generally have a university degree, you need to work for a number of years, and then you need to go through a trustee qualification process, which takes between three and five years with multiple exams and finally an oral exam in front of the superintendent of bankruptcy to make sure they know exactly who they're giving a license to. So it's a very difficult designation to get um, and a very limited number of people, again, about 1,000 in Canada. Sure, and you guys, Sands and Associates, has a ton of offices yeah. in British Columbia, lower mainland alone, mm-hmm. and on the island and uh, in the interior, right? That's right, yeah. So we've got 15 offices. Uh, we've got, I believe, about eight trustees these days. So we've got the most trustees in BC amongst firms that help consumers. Okay. The, you talked about it not being the sexiest of businesses or industries, but if you're watching television, cable television mm-hmm. these days, of course, we're getting all the influx from south of the border, mm-hmm. and there's a whole different game that goes on there mm-hmm. as well, right? Yeah. So that the, we can be influenced by. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the laws for bankruptcies and, and proposals in the U.S. are far more punitive, far more difficult to access. Um, and it's even a totally different role of individual that, that helps you. So um, in the U.S., you need a bankruptcy attorney. And depending on where you travel in the U.S., you'll see bankruptcy attorneys, bankruptcy lawyers advertising like crazy. Yes. Um, in Canada, that doesn't exist. If you need to go into bankruptcy or do a proposal, the government has prohibited lawyers from helping you directly with 
with that filing. You have to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. So the role of a trustee doesn't even exist in the U.S. It only exists in Canada. Okay. Um, and the power that a trustee has in Canada is far greater than that in the U.S. Two huge differences are on amounts owing to government for income taxes and for student loans. Trustee in Canada has the power to compromise those amounts, meaning that they can be discharged in a bankruptcy or reduced in a proposal. A trustee or, or a lawyer in the U.S. has no ability to compromise those amounts. So many people that I see, tax debt is a big factor, student loans is a big factor, along with consumer debts. If you're only solving consumer debts but leaving taxes and student loans, you haven't solved the whole problem there. So I'm pretty proud that a licensed insolvency trustee in Canada has got the power to solve the entire debt problem. Now there's other groups out there, other businesses or companies out there that might want to uh, approach me to help me with my debt issues. And we're calling them debt, what is it, debt providers, debt service providers. Yeah, there's a number of folks, you know, debt consultants would be one, a debt advisor, uh, even a credit counselor. You know, sometimes they even brand themselves a not-for-profit credit counselor or a not-for-profit debt advisor. So there's a bunch of different titles that are out there, and the consumer can understandably be, be confused. Okay, and, and let's talk about the difference between, I mean, you talked about the education that you and mm-hmm. your folks, the eight other, advi- eight other uh, uh, trustees, within Sands and Associates, the designation that they have and the work and education you had to get in order to do that. What's, What's the demands of the other folks that are trying to do this work? Elaine, it's zero. Zero. Lovely. Zero. So I could be one of those people after doing the show. Anybody, <laughs> and, and, any listener out there. No, and, uh, um, it's, sure. it's very shocking, but anybody could hang up a shingle and say, you know, I'm a debt consultant, I'm a debt advisor, I'm here to help you turn things around. There's really no regulation to, to prohibit that type of an activity. And you can imagine, you know, if it's a medical procedure, there's no one saying, hey, I'm the dentist advisor, but I've got no, you know, no qualifications for that. But so essentially there's no minimum qualifications for anybody acting as an advisor or as a credit counselor. And what's really important that people understand is that sometimes things aren't what they seem. Hmm. So if you are looking at, say, an advertisement or you've been to visit, say, a not-for-profit credit counselor, that doesn't mean they don't charge you any fees and that doesn't mean they don't make any money. What what happens with many of the not-for-profit credit counselors is they're actually funded 100% or close to 100% by the credit granting community. So they get their money from the banks and they essentially help by collecting the debt for the banks. Wow. So in the province of Ontario, and I I looked this up before our segment today, um, there are credit counselors who actually have to register as collection agents. So the province of Ontario says if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is. The province of BC doesn't do that. So the same credit counselors in BC that can operate without saying, hey, we're collection agents, they have to register as a collection agent in Ontario. Okay. So again, um, a licensed insolvent trustee versus somebody oh my gosh that's a scary scenario yeah with a licensed insolvency trustee we receive no payments from anybody essentially other than the individual right um, so we get no money from creditors and every dollar that's paid to us it has to be transparent so I'm mandated by the federal government to have trust accounts that are reconciled every month audited twice a year so on and so forth every dollar I have I have to account for and all of the fees all the expenses of a trustee are very transparent and they're very minimal to the individual it's all based on your income and what you can afford and the government says what you have to pay. Right. So there's no inventing a, a 
price because we think somebody can afford it or not. There's no opacity to anything. Everything's very transparent. But the conflict that would uh, that would exist in the other scenario, mm-hmm. where a credit counselor or a credit company is funded by a credit or a debt yeah. counseling funded by oh man, that's brutal. Well, and what really gets me and you know gets me riled up a little bit is it's all about the information as we've talked about. And as long as consumers have their eyes wide open, they can you know make the right choice. So for some people, a credit counseling plan might be a good choice. Um, and a big difference between a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal is in a consumer proposal, I can legally reduce the debts. Exactly. I can reduce them down 30 to 50%, give you protection and all of that. Credit counseling plan, no legal authority to reduce the debts. Often they can freeze the interest. So if you think that your possibilities are I can have all this debt plus interest or I can have all this debt with no interest, well, that sounds great. Let's stick with the credit counseling plan. But if they don't inform you about a consumer proposal, you might stop there. And the real kicker that most people are just shocked to know is your credit rating impact is exactly the same. Oh, that is interesting. So paying back 30% of the debt in a proposal versus paying back 100% of the debt in a credit counseling debt management plan, your credits hurt the same, but financially, how much better off are you in a proposal? Significantly better off. Much, much better. Let's talk about cost for a second. How do you figure out that? How does Sands and Associate figure out uh, how much they get paid when a client walks in the door and says, I've got $50,000 in debt? Yeah, so the wonderful thing is the government does all the work for us. So there, there's no figuring out what we need to get paid. And whatever trustee is chosen to assist in the situation, it could be SANS or it could be any other firm, sure. the fees are exactly the same. So if someone does a consumer proposal, um, let's say they're going to pay back $200 a month, you know, $12,000 over a five-year period on $40,000 of debt, all they pay to get the thing started, to get the proposal started, is the first month's payment. So $200. $200. They make the first month's payment. We send the proposal out to all of their creditors. Their creditors vote back with us. And then in almost every case, 95 to 99% of the time, the proposal gets accepted and the person just keeps making the payments. So there's no upfront 1000 500 No, it's whatever the monthly payment is. You generally make that once and then we see if we've got a deal. We're so confident these proposals almost work that even if someone is, you know, very tight, you know, if their wages have just been garnished the day before they came to see us and it won't happen again, but they don't get paid for two weeks, we'll file a proposal without them making the first month's payment as long as they understand, hey, this is going to work. You're going to have to start paying on it. So just catch it up at some point. Right. But no big upfront costs at all. We haven't talked much about the the unlicensed debt advisors, but that's exactly what they do is they'll pick some number and, you know, it's often around number three to 5,000 bucks and yeah. they say, okay, I'm going to be your representative and I'm going to all the experts that you need and one of those experts might be a trustee or it might be somebody else but you're essentially paying an intermediary with no license with no regulatory oversight um, no basis for the fees to get between you and the trustee who you could have seen for free Blair Manton, Sands and Associates. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Uh, for any information or you want to make a, uh, an appointment for a free consultation 1-800-661-3030 is the number to call. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.